Welcome back, my fellow creatives, to Story Cuppings. We're here in November, the last month of fall, to enjoy the indie authors that I have come to know over the years and to share their unique flavors of writing. I'm really stoked about this one. Uh, Michael Steeden has been just a marvelous soul in my life um, through the years and his poetry and prose, there, there, there's nothing else like him. And, and I do hope you check out his site for a, a taste of that poetry and short fiction. He has published a number of books as well. And I didn't bother turning my phone off. I apologize. Um, he has published a number of books over the years as well. And I wanted to share one of those with you today. Now, because last time I shared Anne Claire's newest wartime uh, fiction, I thought, well, why not see if we could share a little bit of Michael Steeden's wartime fiction? Because he has a fair amount of writing that is set in the earlier 20th century in the interwar period as well as during um, either one of the world wars. I thought why not um, share the first chapter of a novel that was set in that time period and that novel is The Snow White Tigress. Let's see how this first chapter tastes. Chapter One, In the Wake of a Quake. On right off the bat, I don't know if I'll pronounce this correctly. Oh dear. Um, Khorasan Province, Persia, 2nd of July, 1936. Sooner or later, it would have happened regardless of that precise earthquake. After all, for every beginning, there is inevitably an end and ends are unpredictable when seismic plates are out of kilter. Even so, a pity she had to die so young. Oh dear. So we're beginning with death. <laughs> um, and considering the period, this is no real great surprise, um, but you know, it's unique too to me that we are dealing with a very tenuous time where politics and peoples are already shifting and in upheaval. But now the very world itself is in upheaval because with this earthquake, it's a unique visual to represent um, just the feelings that people are feeling above ground, let alone the ground itself having this um, conflict. Three nights and two whole days after the event, when the soldiers had dragged her corpse out of the rubble, she looked like an unwashed, bloated, surprisingly pinkish pig awaiting a butcher's slab and knife. Looking on, she, in an ideal world, not ready to be left to her own devices, was the deceased girl's Saladay's lover. 
She had smiled when realizing poor Maria had perished with her fancy boots on. Just boots. A stray pang of guilt puzzled her through, though, although not unduly. After all, careless smiles and sinless misconduct go hand in hand. In any event, she had guessed Maria's fate already. Stark evidence, merely verification of what her heart had already advised her of. So now we have another female character alive uh, with these soldiers who find this body. And this character has a unique stance to life, or perspective, I should say, unique perspective to life, which, cons again, considering the time period, well, in and, and, and any given culture where conflict and death are just a part of your world, uh, you almost have to have this sense of a disconnect. And it, it, for a moment, she's feeling guilt about it, but at the end, what can she do? And so it's understandable that our female narrator here has to, you know, almost disassociate from the death before her, especially considering, you know, what state the body is in due to being buried and in, in, in the state of decay. It's all bloated and it looks like a pig. I mean, it's not, the death before her no longer even looks human. And it's so much easier to accept a death that isn't human, is it? Isn't it? Prior to the visible corroboration, she had prayed. Prayed in hope of a miracle. Denied common sense the freedom to tell her otherwise. For the life of her, she had no idea as to why. She was not an idiot. She knew full well that a prayer is not but a wish in disguise, and wishes rarely come true. In her defense, she told herself she was allowed a little stupidity on that day, the day her lover had discovered the cruelty of a biased death. Maria was a good kid, by no means an academic. She could speak two languages, yet rarely spoke in either. Besides, well-versed young lovers often do without idle words. In the wake of the quake, the little house they shared had fallen down. Alive, yet all she now owned were the clothes she stood up in. Albeit of little concern presently, come the freezing night, in all probability she would be chilled to the marrow. The thought struck that she would happily trade her pretty blue frock for a gentleman's overcoat overlooking the fact that overcoats were always in short supply following any seismic disaster. A little later, the soldiers took her up, took her to an open top, already overcrowded, army lorry. They had said she would be delivered to the glorious land of tents. Prior to departure, she asked if she could have her lover's fancy boots and a lock of her hair as a memento. Having checked the ever-growing pile of dead bodies, male and female, young and old, no boots, fancy or otherwise, were to be found. Likewise, Maria's carcass was now on the missing list. No reminders of the recent past to be had. Still no tears. So again, we're having this disassociation and, and a departure, too. 
uh, as our female narrator is going to be moved elsewhere from the house she had been sharing with Maria, the girl who died. And now there is nothing of Maria. Maria is nothing. She is gone. And there is something very disturbing about this because there are so many other dead bodies and yet this one that stood out like a pig is missing. That's unnerving as a reader. And as a writer, I am sure Michael is giving us these details to help, again, establish that the chaos after such a natural disaster, the impending chaos, because we know what year this is. This is 1936. We are on the cusp, if not have already started, because I, as I mentioned last week, my history knowledge is not always up to par, but I know thing. if things haven't started yet, the rumbles are there. Um, plus I'm American, so then we... we no, I'm not going to blame my Americanness. <laughs> um, I, I always forget when in the 30s things really kick in. Okay, my apologies. That's on me. Um, but so we have this. Our narrator again. She she's we still have a sense of that disconnect. She she is going along with it because she is in survival mode. I mean, she's prepared to just trade whatever she has left of herself for the sake of warmth she and a memento and a memory of a lover that's not going to keep her warm so there's a reason we can understand why she is not wasting the energy to cry that she is not going to stay and look for the body she's got to live on and so we follow her along to her land of tents Upon arrival, her initial observation was that the glorious land of tents would be more appropriately named the sinister forest of tents. Having made mention of this observation to a seemingly important soldier, he obtusely replied, Well, love, you can't have everything. She called him a rude word before being moved on to her tent. Within, a broken-hearted mother and three noisy brats living in a fantasy. Forgiveness of noisy brats, perpetual noise, did not come easy. Notwithstanding the fact that the brat's father was one of the corpses in the pile of no boots. Blankets arrived and shortly after drinking water also, although one had to queue with others for the water. Better still, by dusk, food in the form of crusty bread and apricot jam. No knives to cut the bread or spread the jam with materialized. At dawn's first light, the broken-hearted mother and three noisy brats woke up to find their erstwhile companion gone. Rumor has it the ghost of a fetching young lady in a pretty blue frock, a pair of fancy boots clutched in one hand, a lock of hair held tight in the other, can oft-times be seen in these parts. Amid the host of wildflowers of an untouched meadow that was once a place known to locals as the forest of tents. A myth? Yes, a myth. For in truth, she who had lost everything, even misplaced her birth name, had long since settled in 
gay Perry, the city of love, to reinvent herself. What had once been a life of powerlessness, poverty, stayed behind along with her myth, in its place, one of resolve to make her fortune any which way she could, and, along the way, to, to, to fulfill her every last dark desire. Menacing seismic plates out of kilter, jeopardizing the only life she would ever have, if nothing else, had taught her that time was of the essence. That's the end of the first chapter. It's short, so I and, and I do first chapter reviews, so I can't keep going. As tempting as it is. Um, now, I love the ethereal, I think is the word I want to go for here, go for here, because we have this very real sense of our of our female character. I don't even know if I can call her a narrator. We kind of lose her as the narrator. And yet, I don't know if we ever really had her. She was present with the narrator, I would say. It's almost like a third person limited. Because uh, as we find out, she has no name, at least as of right now. She's lost that name. She's lost all of herself in that pile of no boots. Just as others have, like the family that she finds herself with. And yet, by morning, she is gone. And I, I like on how she immediately takes on an unworldly presence with the locals that she could not have possibly been real, this stranger in a blue dress. No, she, she is just a ghost. And yet, as we are seeing with the narrator, no, this person was very much, was very, was indeed quite present. But rather than linger in the moment of death and upheaval, this female character has moved forward, has defied the upheaval to find what she is after. Her fortune, as it says here. And if myths are left in her wake, so be it. And in seeing what this character has already dealt with in just a few pages. Yeah, this whole first chapter is all of three pages long. And she has already dealt with loss. She, loss of home, loss of lover, loss of identity. What else is left for her to lose? And the last line hints at that, I guess, is time. And so why spend it in this, how did she put it? Sinister forest of tents. I don't blame her. I wouldn't either. And that's where our, that's our starting point, I should say, with the Snow White Tigress. And I mean, of course, Michael Steeden is stellar as always when it comes to creating these characters that we root for even if we're not always 
going to do what they would have done. Um, I mean, these are these are flawed characters in Steven's work that are very passionate, occasionally a little bit selfish. I mean, like our well, our character here, you know. She's going to go off and find her fortune. It's not a matter of helping the brats or helping <laughs> anybody else. She's going to she's gonna go and make her mark, and but damned if you get in her way. And yet, who couldn't root for that after what she's gone through? And that's what I think I, I, I love about Steeden's story writing, is that... These are characters we're still going to cheer on if we even if we don't completely agree with what they're doing. We're still going to cheer for them because we understand there is empathy. And that's something not every writer has really worked out how to build empathy between their characters and their readers. It's very very difficult for a reader to want to read about a character they don't like. It is exceedingly rare. I did a blog post on that once, actually, some years back, about if your protagonist can be a jerk in a story worth reading. Um, but that's one thing I've always marveled in Michael Steeden's writing, is that in any poem, in any story, we empathize with the souls he creates. And as a working writer, that is something you need to accomplish very quickly. And like Steeden does it here in three pages. And sometimes you don't even have that much time. Sometimes you only have a paragraph. Sometimes you only have a few lines. But you have to make those lines count in order to make your readers connect. And in this case of Snow White Tigress, in that first paragraph, in the rubble, in the death, we already can quickly empathize with this female character who is experiencing loss. So how will you, my fellow creatives, help your readers connect with your characters? Whether they like them or not, whether they agree with them or not, but will they empathize? Will they connect? That is what helps finalize that motivation among picky readers to keep reading. It's that empathy. Now, will we continue to read about such characters next week? I'm not sure. I got a couple other indie authors I'm hoping to share this month before a little project my daughter Blondie and I are brewing comes to fruition in December. So I hope you'll stick around and return and do other things that denote being present. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at wrapping things up today. So read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers. <laughs>